and gentlemen, this is a momentous occasion in the history of financial well-being podcasting because today is our 50th podcast. And in order to celebrate this auspicious moment, I would like to sing happy birthday <laughs> in the style of Marilyn oh, Monroe no. Oh, no. singing happy birthday Happy birthday to you. Is anybody else screaming? Happy birthday to you. Tom and I both got our eyes closed. <laughs> Happy birthday, Financial Wellbeing Podcast. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. And we've lost half of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Almost well, certainly the female half. <laughs> I'm not sure I can come back from that. I don't know, can you guys finish the pod? I think there's going to be a lot of people out there going, my God, that man's versatile. <laughs> <laughs> Open for bookings? <laughs> anyway, it is unbelievably our 50th podcast. David, uh, when we started this podcast, people said you'll never make it to 50. <laughs> no, I know, I know. I was only 23 at the time. <laughs> So we're going to move on, actually, because we've got a great interview today, a really interesting interview coming up. But before that, let's get some of our regular features done and dusted. So clients of Ovation Finance love to ask questions. Tomo, what have you got for us this week? Real quick one is we all know cash is not exactly returning a lot at the moment. So people go, should I just invest all of my cash and get rid of my cash buffer? The answer is no. Cash buffer is great. Don't worry about the return. It's all about having a safety net in case the worst was to happen. Great financial well-being. Yeah. Mm. One, one of the main blocks of financial well-being is knowing that you can cope with financial shocks if something happens. So that's a really, really good financial well-being E-type tip. Excellent. Great. Clear into the point then. And now let's move on as well. Titus <laughs> Tomo, what have you got for us this week? Wow, David. I understand this week we've got lots of different tips from our ex-interviewers. When I say ex-interviewers, they're just people who interviewed with us in the past. Um, guests, I think we generally call them. Yes, and I, rather than hear me provide tips, mainly because I just haven't brought one today, we're just listening to somebody else's. Um, so, Chris, I think you've got one. From... Yeah, yeah. So, so Greg Davis, he his tip uh, says never buy anything when the desire first occurs. If after two days it still seems a great idea, then by all means spend the money. Greg Davis, behavioural finance expert and fascinating guy. His two podcasts were just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and that's a very good tip as well. I actually, I applied that just the other day. I was thinking of buying something. I was umming and ahhing about whether or not I could afford it. I left it a couple of days and then actually decided that I would go ahead. And Eventually decided, yes, I will have that sandwich. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was actually a hotel. We're going away and it was a really, really nice hotel. And I thought... <sighs> That's rather expensive. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a little think about that yeah. and actually work out if I can afford it and actually work out how happy it's going to make me be if I do and what how I'm going to feel if I don't. And having thought about it for a couple of days, I thought, yep, yeah, we're going to the fancy yeah. hotel. But yeah, I did, yeah. I, and I, I certainly did, took that advice on board. And again, there's, there's good financial well-being theory in there as well because by delaying it, you're also increasing your satisfaction. Yeah. Um, you're spending money on experiences rather than stuff. So this is this is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> this is bringing all the 50 episodes together. Here you go. If you use Amazon, put it in the safe for later, not in the basket. I'll just touch on that. That's a tip. We do workshops um, around the country with employees. So any employers out there who want to 
give a, a one-hour workshop to their staff to help them improve their financial well-being. I'm your man. Um, but that's one of the tips we give. And a few in the room do it, and they say, yeah, absolutely, it's, it works. So there you go. Well and great. Um, I've got one from Simone Ganesson, and she gives a practical tip. She suggests you remove your pre-saved card details from your favourite online shops, for example, Amazon, as we just mentioned. That'll create a chance for you to think twice before making an instant impulse purchase. So again, stopping us from uh, from doing it straight away and making us think before we buy things. And again, Greg Davis has said about making, putting in, oh, I can't remember the phrase he uses, but putting in systems to stop you from making bad decisions. That's one of the things that he talks about. And that's a great example from Simone. Yeah. Um, Iona Bain, I've got one from her. She keeps most of her clothes at her parents' house. And this A, saves money on storage, and B, saves money on new clothes. Yeah, clever. And a lot of these things <laughs> tend to be about impulse, don't they? We yeah. tend to do a lot of things on impulse. Particularly if we're feeling a bit low, we might think, oh, I'm a bit down, a bit of retail therapy. I'll have that, I'll have that. Mm. And obviously there's something about making it slightly more difficult for you to make those impulsive decisions. So Maria Nadeva, she has a great slogan. It says, make money, don't let money make you. Oh, that's deep. Isn't that a good one? Anybody who didn't listen to the force of nature that is Maria Nadeva and her podcast, go back and listen to that one. She's absolutely fantastic. I've got another one for, from Simone Ganesson. Um, for those who haven't yet listened to her podcast, I say yet because obviously they're going to go back and listen to it. Uh, Simone's a financial coach and trains people with their relationship to money. And I really like this practical one that she's got here. She said, make your password a goal. Mixing up the letters and numbers so that you have to say it in your head and type it to reinforce a positive money message. So, for example, if you're saving uh, £30,000 as a deposit for a flat by the age of 35, make your password pound sign 30k at 35. 30k at 35. If you have to use that every time you put your phone on or every time your, your computer goes to sleep, you're reinforcing the message wow. many, many times a day. That is absolutely brilliant. Isn't that isn't That's very simple, but I'm going to do that because I can never remember my password. <laughs> <laughs> what a good idea. But however, it's all very well going around all of these people that really know stuff about So-called experts. All of these great brains, these financial wizards. But we're going to leave the last word to Chris's mum with her evergreen classic, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. <laughs> she has done that a lot over the years. Indeed. My mum is extraordinary with being able to find a little bit of money for Sunday lunch to, to, oh, to know, treat us and the kids. You know, Mums are good at that, aren't they? Yeah. Right, OK, so that's just a little brief roundup of some of the things we've been talking about in the last 50 episodes, and we look forward very much to the next 50. But let's round this one off with an extended interview that you've done today, Chris. Tell us about that. So Amanda Press, uh, talk about force of nature. <laughs> I think that, that epithet would work for her perfectly. She has published over, well, 21 novels published. By the sounds of it, three already done and in the process. Many of them number one bestsellers around the world. She's a successful TV and radio career as well. So she's on pieces like Loose Women and The Jerry Vines Show. Uh, she was on Graham Norton recently. Her latest book is called The Girl on the Corner. And we interviewed her because she has some very interesting things to say about purpose in life, about what got her into writing, but also particularly about her attitude to money. Uh, which is absolutely fascinating and comes on in the second half of the, the interview. So let's have a listen to my chat with Amanda Price. Producer point just before we go in, we had a couple of technical issues recording it. So if Amanda's voice sounds a little bit quiet at times, apologies, but it's a fantastic interview. So don't let that fight your urge to continue listening. 
Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I want to talk about a couple of different things, but I particularly want to start off, obviously, with your with your writing. Mm. Loads of people aspire to write a novel, but never actually find the time to do it. How did you start? Mm, I, do you know, I always find it quite disheartening when people say, I'd love to write a book, but I don't think I can. Or I'd love to write a book, but I don't really know how to start. Um, and I was certainly one of those people. I didn't have a great level of education. And I always thought to write a book, you would have to know where all those little dots and dashes went. You'd have to understand punctuation in a way that I certainly don't. I was always an avid reader, loved books, and um, grew up in a house without any books, actually. If you don't count the Littlewoods catalogue and a Haynes car manual, I think that's about <laughs> the extent of our family library. But I always loved books, and libraries were my, 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 you know, my escape, my friends, my educators. And then when I was uh, nearly 40, I got cancer. And I said to my husband, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And I thought, this is my one time round the block. What do I want to do? I'm going to have a go. So I just sat down and wrote my first novel, Poppy Day. And I think the thing that the biggest barrier for me starting writing was my lack of confidence. And I would say to anybody, if not now, when, have a go. Just do it. Just write something down. You know what? It might be complete pants. It might be the next Fifty Shades. It might, you might be the next J.K. Rowling. But if you don't try, you're never, ever going to know. And it's far easier to rewrite and far easier to edit than it is to start. So once you've got something on paper, really, you're up and running. I think that confidence thing is an interesting point. I know from my own stuff that, that when you publish something, it, it's like the ultimate handing in of your homework, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> Everybody's it's like showing someone your diary as well. Yes. You know, yeah. it's very often your inner thoughts and inner workings. It's like saying, here's my diary. Here's my inner thoughts. What do you think? And you know you're going to be judged not only on your academic prowess and your ability to construct, construct a sentence, but also the way your mind works. It's quite a sort of intimate reveal of you. Um, but you have to just think, you know what, I'm doing it for me. And I, I still say now, if no one ever bought my books, I would still write them because it's become a bit of a compulsion for me. I love doing it. Um, and also people don't have to, they don't have to write a bestseller, do they? They can write, they can write a shopping list. They can write a paragraph, a sentence, a postcard, a letter. It's still writing. And all those little things actually help you hone your craft, I, I find. And the more you do it, the better you get at it, like anything. Do you think... Uh, that if you hadn't have had cancer, you wouldn't have started writing? I don't think I would have started writing, which is a real something, I could, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because it turns out to be the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to me, which is really odd. And when these things do happen to you, which happen to all of us, it's just life, I'm afraid, it feels unique. You feel like you're the only person it has ever happened to. It pulls the rug out from under you. And it's like your whole life has been put in a walk and thrown in the air. And you think, oh, you know, where do we go from now? How do we cope? How does this work? But once you sort of realise, actually, it's also a chance for a new beginning. It's a chance to reassess your priorities, look at what's important, cut dead wood from your life. You know, I thought to myself, do you know what? If I've got six months or I've got 10 years, I don't want to spend it queuing in Ikea. I don't want to spend it with people that I think, do you know, this is an absolute drain on my time. I want to seek out the fun. I want to be with people I love. I want to be with people that enrich my life. My family, who I just like to sit and have a cup of tea with, you know, we're not dancing in the Riviera every night. It's just the simple things. It really made me reassess what brought me joy. And uh, so that certainly was, was one of the good things. And the other thing is, yes, it, it made me right because I thought exactly what I said before. If not now, when? You know, this is my time. Do you hear that a lot, David? Do you think that's quite a common thing? Well, 
the proceeds of the book go to a place called the Penny Bron Cancer Centre. I don't know if you've come across it. I know the Penny Bron Cancer Centre. There you go. I know it very well. Wonderful. Oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, that just made my day. <laughs> um, if you have a listen to one of our earlier podcasts, the lead medical practitioner there is a, a wonderful, amazing lady called uh, Dr. Catherine Zolman. And we had an interview uh, on this podcast with her, and it's absolutely fascinating. I just so recommended it. It was so interesting. But one thing particularly that really, really has stuck with me is, and my wife works there, and, and she says this as a cancer nurse, and she says the same thing, that quite often when people get cancer, they, after some time, report an increase in their well-being. Mm. I think certainly it's it's weird, isn't it? Because I think every journey is different, but you're absolutely right. It's almost like you're given a second chance and it's almost like it puts wind in your sails that you didn't know you have. And there's a phrase I, 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 I've heard attributed to Buddha and Stephen King. I'm not sure who said it, but either is fine <laughs> in my book. Exactly. And, it was, and the phrase is, the trouble is you always think you have more time. And, yeah. and just those, those words really resonate for me because we all do. Yeah. You know, we all think, oh, I should go and see my mum. Oh, I'll go next week. Oh, I really should get that form in. Oh, I'll do it tomorrow. It's, we, we just all procrastinate. I think it's part of human nature. But actually, it makes you realise, oh, my time could have been today. It could be tomorrow. So what do I want to do? My clock's ticking. And it's like, it sort of, it winds you up. You know, you become sort of reinvigorated, energised, and it puts into focus all the things that are really important. It certainly did for me. Well, having... 20 books is it now having written 20 books and bestsellers you I do know what it's terrible isn't it I, I kind of lose count a little bit which sounds terrible the trouble is I write ahead of my publishing schedule because I write so quickly so I'm not sure whether I've got 23 out at the moment or 24 25 but I've certainly written 26 and the publishers are catching up put it that way so kind of, well. I'm a machine <laughs> you certainly haven't wasted your time that's that's for sure I, I'm interested in the, the the financial aspect so so you've just inspired all of our all of our listeners to go off and start writing their novel uh it's also important to understand as you say you would do it because you want to write not because of money I read mm. that there are only 15 people in the UK who make a living out of writing fiction that, is that right? That seems very small. It, it does. seems like a very small amount. It does, and, and I have no proof of it, but it makes a really good point, so I'm sticking with it. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let, do you know what? Let's go with that. 15 years, <laughs> right. <laughs> was there a particular moment when you realised that writing was something that was a viable career, financially possible? It's, it's you know, my financial life, my financial history is, is a sort of very funny one. I, I don't really like money. I've never been good with money and I've never had any. So I guess that all kind of connects together quite well. Um, I grew up in a very humble family. You know, my dad worked in factories and my mum stayed at home. We never had any money. And I kind of got used to that being my life. And I always thought my paycheck was that week's money, which kind of tells you all you need to know. So if I was cleaning, you know, I'd earn 80 quid and that was how I paid for food and sustenance and rent and all the rest of it so it became very much a sort of I suppose what you call a hand-to-mouth existence and then I became a single mum and of course my life changed dramatically because it wasn't just my mouth that needed feeding I had a very hungry boy child as well and they are very hungry on these little locusts that come along and it was it was a whole different different thing for me I kept thinking right now I need to think about financial security it didn't occur to me that I could ever earn a lot of money so I thought well I'll just get more jobs so I did I worked two or three or four jobs I worked in a call center I was a cleaner I was a waitress I did everything I could to to increase what was coming in and of course whether you earn 
a fortune or whether you earn minimum wage, every penny is accounted for, as it always is. It kind of does, it's mysterious, isn't it, how that happens? But every penny is sort of needed. Um, and life was quite difficult for quite a long time, but it was very much about um, living one week to the next. And then by a sheer fluke, I don't really know how, I went for a job a sales job in a management consultancy company who sold this very, very technical, whizzy technical solution to do with data analysis. And um, the MD who was interviewing me was explaining to me how it worked. And it was so complicated and so convoluted and very mathematical. And I am none of those things. And I said, hang on, do you mean it's a bit like Lego? So you can look at this product and make it do anything you want to do, to build it into something that you need. He went, oh my gosh, that's exactly it, Amanda. And it was like a light bulb moment for them because so far in that company, everyone had been very technically, as I say, mathematically driven. And suddenly there was me, this, you know, bubbly blonde who's going, oh, no, hang on a minute. You mean Lego, don't you? Or, you know, <laughs> other building blocks are available, I believe. Um, and he said, you need to go and talk to all our clients. You need to go around the world and explain wh how you understand the product because the people that are using the product are people like you. They're laymen. They're not technicians. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, I can do that. He said, oh, we'll give you a company car. I nearly fell off the, on, I nearly fell off the chair. I was like, you're going to give me a car? He said, yeah, and we'll give you a great salary. I think they gave me something like, I think it was about 40, 45,000 pounds a year, which was a king's ransom. Um, absolutely transformed everything for me. It was, <laughs> it was nuts. Going from earning minimum wage to this was just incredible. And uh, that was my life. I traveled all over talking about these very technical products in my very layman way. And I was, I was amazingly successful at it. So that was sort of the first taste of earning money, which meant I could then put down a deposit for a small flat. It meant I could start to plan financially slightly. I could start to think about the future. I could invest in a very small pension pot. All those things, I think, you know, had been barred to me previously. Um, and then, of course, I got sick and I left my job. And uh, by this stage, I was then married to my husband, who's a wonderful soldier. And yeah, I, I, um, I, when I got sick, gave up my job because I you know, had to concentrate on my health and we went down to one salary and again it was pretty much a sort of hand-to-mouth existence again because you know the money wasn't great and by this stage we had two sons you know a house to pay for and everything that comes with it and it was during the stage of recovery I said to my husband I'd like to write a book but immediately our thoughts were how do we go from having this two-income household down to one you know how do we cope that's financially it's going to cripple us and um, I think we sort of spoke about the idea that we put a time frame on it because we didn't expect my books to take off in the way they had. I think it was really about my personal achievements, uh, part of my recovery, part of me, you know, ticking something off my bucket list, if you like. Um, so the plan was I'd write this book and then probably go back and get a proper sensible job. That was the idea. I got the absolute bug for it. And the first book did uh, very, very well. That came out when I was in my, I think I was 41 or 42. I'm 50 now. And it just sold like wildfire. And it was that sort of, magic that you can't really create it was people talking at the water cooler it was people saying to their friends on the school run I've just read this book poppy date you have to read it and it started to grow and I got approached by an agent um, who came to a book signing that I was doing for charity in Selfridges and that was a really it was a day that my life changed completely because um, I was born in Stepney and my grandparents were you know dockers East End stock through and through and I can remember my nan saying that when she got married during the war, she went to look at the wedding dresses in Selfridges and she walked up to the store, which, as you know, is in the middle of Oxford Street. And one of the doormen looked at her and she thought, oh, I can't go in there. 
full of posh people. It's full of, you know, people who have a spare bedroom or, you know, people that don't have to buy their, <laughs> their material with coupons. And she left. She didn't go in. She felt too intimidated to go inside. And there I was, all those years later, in Selfridges, signing my very first book. It was a real sort of moment of <laughs> amazing. That's, unbeknown that's to me. Story. Oh, it was just, you know, it was one of those things. I just, I was so emotional. It really sort of meant the world to me. And um, unbeknown to me on that day, Simi and my husband had been practicing how we had the conversation where he says to me, do you know what, man? This has been a great journey. You've finished your book, but we are absolutely skint. And we really were. Um, in fact, he had 20 quid in his wallet and that was all our money. And we had to drive from London back to Bristol. And he was unsure if we had enough money for fuel. He was going to have to contact my dad and say, look, you know, could you sort of some money out to get back to Bristol? I didn't know any of this, of course, because I was so enjoying my moment. I don't think he really wanted to puncture that for me. Um, but it really was the last day. That was it. And I had no idea. And I was just loving it. And this very grand lady. Have you seen The Devil Wears Prada? Have you seen that movie? Uh, I've, my wife watched it recently, funnily enough, yes. Right. Well, that's my agent, but even more scary. She's, <laughs> you know, she's magnificent and beautiful and sexy. And, oh, she's just out of this world. I'm petrified of her, but don't tell her that. And uh, she came to this book signing and she came up to the table and she said, I've read this book. She said, it really needs editing. She said, it's full of mistakes. She said, the cover's terrible. She said, but I'd like to sign you and be your agent. And I said, oh, do I need one? What do they do? I was so naive. I knew nothing about publishing. As somebody who has is looking right now at a massive pile of rejection letters from agents, I'm crying to myself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know. And said, I, I know. need to take you on. That's wonderful. And, I, and, and this lady apparently had been trying to call me. And I saw the number coming up on my phone. So, oh, PPI, delete. PPI, delete. I thought, you know, it's only someone trying to flog me something. And there she is. She's like this Manchester United of agents. And she's trying to call me. And I'm like, yeah, I can't take your call. Um, she thought I was being very cool. Of course I wasn't. I would have bitten the hand off had I known. Do you know what? The, the point of that, of that is that um, it's got to happen to somebody. <laughs> exactly. And exactly that. And, and I had written, I think I'd written probably to 50 agents and publishers and they all wrote back and said not interested nobody wants to read a love story set in london and afghanistan not for us thank you not for our list nice book but blah 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 some people hadn't even read it. obviously they don't have time but it was really disheartening and i thought this is never going to happen but that's okay because i've self-published it i've got this book it's selling copies this is this is all good and i suppose you know long story short within three days she got me a three book deal and with a publisher called Head of Zeus. And I think I got about, I think it was about £7,000, which, which absolutely transformed everything for us. Not only because it was the fact that someone had given us £7,000, which meant, you know, we could get rid of some of our debt. I think we had fish and chips for the first time in a very long time as a treat. <laughs> but it meant that somebody was willing to pay for the words I was putting on paper. And that was a game changer. That was something that in my mind resonated. And I never thought for a minute about the financial side of it. I just kept thinking, well, if I occasionally get a check for £7,000, this is absolutely brilliant. You know, this is, this is life-changing stuff for us. By this stage, we'd sold our house. We were in rented. We'd sold most of our possessions, all of our furniture, our car, everything. Um, and we were literally sort of, excuse the phrase, we were on the bones of our arse. But it was manageable because we had a wage coming in and I was having these, you know, these lovely little checks from this, uh, as I assumed would happen. And, and everything felt good. And then, quite amazingly, my second book uh, sold ridiculously well. I think it sold something like 
a quarter of a million copies in the first sort of couple of months or whatever it was. And I remember the first time I realized that my financial situation was changing in a way that I had never imagined and could not have ever predicted. I can remember getting a royalty check in and it was, it was literally something like 50, 60, 70,000 pounds. And I remember thinking, this is just, it, it didn't feel real. It didn't feel real. That, that was mine. That was ours. That was, you know, that was our income. I feel quite emotional actually talking about it because it was just an absolute life-changing moment. And I was still this, you know, slightly fat wife and mother who's at home cooking fish fingers and, you know, trying to find the boys clean pants in the morning and seeking out rugby kit wherever it was needed. And someone had given me this enormous amount of money. And I thought, this is absolutely just, it changed everything. It, it, I thought, well, if this continues, then of course my mind's going up thinking, well, if this continues, then not only can actually we buy a house, know a house we want to live in with a garden where I can plant things and watch them grow this is this girl who's you know born in an east end council flat if I can do that then maybe the sky's the limit and uh, it, it still is a, um, a sort of wonderful wonderful surprise to me I never ever take it for granted and it all that, started you know, it all started <sighs> you sat down and put some words on a page exactly exactly and now you know I earn over a million pounds a year and it's such a such a ridiculous sum that it's not real. And the strange thing is, I always thought when we were really skint, if I had a bit of money, if I could take the kids to Spain on holiday, if I could buy them new trainers, if I could have a spare bedroom, I would be so much happier. That would be brilliant. And don't get me wrong, being able to pay my bills and not lose sleep over where I'm going to find the money to pay those bills has been the best and biggest wonderful thing ever. But I've realized now I can do anything I want. I just want to be at home on a sofa with my husband, watching a bit of rubbish telly, writing a book, walking in the garden. You know, I, I just don't do any of those things that I suppose I thought would make me happy because I've realized that happiness isn't in that stuff. It isn't in those experiences. It's just being with the man I love, my amazing kids, my wonderful family for as much time as I've got. That's what makes me happy. And it was always there. I don't know if this is true, but I read somewhere that you only have enough possessions that you can fit into a, a, a suitcase. I yeah, that's true. Is that true? Can you tell us about mm. that? Well, I, because we were moving around a lot, um, you know, we were moving from rented accommodation to rented accommodation. I suddenly thought, gosh, I'm lugging all this stuff around, winter clothes, summer clothes, it's ridiculous. So I sort of got rid of everything. And when we sold all our possessions so that we could have some money so I could sort of fund my writing career, if you will, um, I've never really felt less restricted or it just felt very freeing not to have to worry or care for or store or own lots of stuff. Um, and admittedly, I, I must say that since we've moved into our forever home, which we have now, I have been rebuying all the books that I had to sell before. So I do have, you know, 8 million books. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, I do have things like, you know, my grandparents, old dining table and, and you know things that make our home practical and workable I do have all that stuff but my personal possession I don't have any jewelry I have one pair of boots that I wear throughout the winter I have a pair of flip-flops that I wear in the summer one pair of jeans and uh, a few different tops so a floaty top in the summer and a jersey which I'm wearing today for the winter uh, minimal makeup a couple of items which um, is probably pointless explaining to you the makeup that I do have to be honest with um, but yeah I have very very little I just don't need it I don't want it I feel unencumbered by it and I find it quite amusing that people 
Well, actually, amusing is the wrong word. I find it intriguing how people feel the need to acquire more stuff as though that's where their happiness might lie, in getting more stuff. And of course it doesn't. It's all the stuff we were talking about before. But um, I feel freer. I feel unencumbered. And whenever I go to do a TV show or a radio or whatever it is, people are like, oh, there you are. And they take a photo of me with the host. I think, oh, I'm wearing the same thing as I was last time. But I find that, why is that a problem? You know, why does it matter? I, I don't think it does. And we are so consumer-driven, consumer-obsessed and, and, you know, things-led. If only we just all took a step back and bought less and recycled and upcycled. Um, in fact, everything in our home, um, I can pretty much say with certainty, 99% of every single thing we have in our new home, I have bought secondhand um, from auction sites like eBay or from uh, thrift sales or garden sales or, or garage sales, whatever it is. The only things I think we've invested in new are a, a sofa. Other than that, every single thing, even our cutlery and our table mats has all come secondhand because I think there's too much stuff in the world. <laughs> Amanda, I think I need to uh, sack David Lloyd, and you need to now be presenting the Financial Wellbeing podcast. <laughs> You're our post Sorry, David. <laughs> Sorry about that. But thanks for your service. <laughs> can I just and tune finish... in next week? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're being natural. Can Can I just finish off with one question, um, just about the publishing? Because you know, it's not often that people are going to get to hear such a successful author talk about writing. Uh, and there's one bit in particular that I've always found quite intriguing. I went on a, a writing retreat recently and the five, six other people, but they were all talking about, about what they were writing. And one of them particularly who's been quite successful was changing genre, which meant she had to change her agent. And I found all this quite fascinating. What? And it see, yeah, it, it seems that there are lots of people out there who write to an audience. So they're not writing from passion because they feel, they're writing almost as a job. Um, they That's pick, interesting. They pick chiclet or young adult or whatever these phrases are, and they write to that audience. Do you ever do that? How do you work? That is really, really interesting. And, you know, something I haven't really thought about, but I was given two bits of advice when I started writing from my, from my agent, who I'm still with now. She said, the first thing is, find your own voice. Don't try and be the next, you know, Maeve Finchie, the next, um, you know, Tom Clancy. Try and be the first Amanda Prowse. She said, that's very important. She said, and secondly, always listen to every bit of feedback you get. Um, she said, because, you know, some people are going to love your work, some are going to hate it, but everyone has an opinion that can shape what you do. So in answer to your question, I allow feedback to shape the way I write. So, for example, in some of my earlier books, people said, oh, I would have liked a longer ending or I would have liked, you know, to know more about these sub characters. And I've taken that on board and adapted. But actually, I could only ever write the books that are in my head. And I think if you started to try and make your writing formulate, so you're trying to feed a particular audience, I think you might lose some of your authenticity. Um, and I think, you know, look at Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly not comparing myself to Shakespeare. Um, but. He wrote histories, comedies, romances. No one said, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Well, you can't write that. You've already written that. Look at Stephen Fry, who can write, you know, the most enigmatic poetry to the most brilliant comedy. Someone like, you know, Rowan Atkinson. Someone, you know, even like J.K. Rowling, who will write a contemporary play, you know, that is very, um, quite sexualized. And then she'll write a Harry Potter fantasy. We shouldn't pigeonhole ourselves. And I think if people want to read and want to hear what you have to say, it doesn't matter what the genre is. You've got to write for you. 
Otherwise, I think you're not being true to that voice in your head. And it's that unique voice in your head that sets you apart from every other writer. Well, that is a fantastic bit of advice and a great place to finish. Amanda, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Anytime, Chris. Thank you. Okay, let's get something straight now, should we? <laughs> Apparently, I've just learned live on air that I've been sacked. <laughs> uh, to say that I'm hurt is, well, an understatement. But, but it's a fair point, though, isn't it? She would be good. <laughs> she would be absolutely brilliant. Well, on the assumption, actually, that you were only joking, and I know you were, are we going to carry on on the assumption that I'm still hosting this podcast? <laughs> so, uh, fascinating interview, Chris. Oh, well isn't, wasn't she great? Wasn't mm. she? Well, mm. The bit at the beginning uh, where she talks about what got her writing was having cancer, and that wonderful phrase, if not now, when? You know, I think that's hugely inspiring. I found it fascinating, again, Catherine Zolman mentioned it, but that well-being when you're sort of faced with adversity and cancer because it makes strip away the crap. You really concentrate on what's important to you in life, and she's clearly just grabbed that. And you know, I couldn't help but think, oh, good on him for really going for it. And what must have been some tough times, and you kind of listened to it, but I certainly didn't. Thought, God, I'm really pleased it's worked out for you. Yeah, really yeah. pleased. Yeah, that's the feeling I had as well. I mean, as a as a writer myself, obviously in a different field of television, but th there is that sense that you picked up from her of... I mean, it can be quite lonely sometimes, and you have this strong uh, belief in your own ability, but if it's not reflected in terms of people employing you and giving you work, it can chip away at your self-confidence. And clearly, whatever happened to her happened at just the right time, but she's managed to develop this huge strength of character, I think, that's just kept her going. And I'm absolutely delighted that she's had the success that she's had. She's also, I think, quite modest, because when she tells that incredible story about a book signing at Selfridges mm. and the agent comes up and her husband was outside about to walk in and say, we've only got 20 quid left, it's, mm. all, it's all over, you know. What a story. But she was in a, signing books in Selfridges. So she has the, whatever you call it, the get up and go, mm. to organise herself to write a book get it probably self-published, I would imagine, and then go to Selfridges and, and, and have a signing. So she made her own luck here. You know, that amazing story only came about because of all the hard work yeah. that she put And she did say she was self-published, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly, and I think there's a very important point there. People say, and it's, people have said that to me, oh, you've been lucky, you were lucky to get that. And I refute that really strongly because I think, yeah, sometimes you get a break in a particular direction... But you make your own luck and you make your own luck by working really hard mm -hmm. and having a belief in yourself and a passion, which she clearly has. And yeah. I found that quite inspirational. Yeah. And if you do get that break, you still have to make the most of it. Yeah. yeah really and do. her attitude to money, you know, she doesn't own any jewellery, one pair of boots. I mean, it's, it, and she earns a million pounds a year. Yeah. And she obviously, you know, I think it probably is implied that she does do an awful lot of charitable stuff. So, mm. um yeah, what a, what a great attitude and, to me. And credit to her husband as well, the, the 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 silent partner, if you like. Obviously, he's been a huge support to her if they got to the point where they'd sold their house, mm. sold their car, sold their possessions and belongings, were down to the last 20 quid. And he obviously had that belief in her as well, and, and that must have been great for both of them. Fantastic. I think she was brilliant, and uh, and she was perfect for our 50th episode exactly and i hope you've all enjoyed that at home and we look forward very much to being back with you in the very near future for another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts 
If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.